0: good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a subject this evening that everyone can relate to. Okay? So our subject this evening, I was um, talking to Father Bresnahan about the subject, and he said, well, it's about relationships. I said, okay, I can do that. It's pretty nice and broad. And then I was uh, speaking with uh, the, the, the youth office up in the Diocese, and they said, "No, I want to talk about healing past wounds." Now, there's something everybody can relate to. What I'm going to say this evening is going to be broad enough that we can talk about past wounds, whether they be small or whether they be absolutely traumatic. Okay. But before I begin, I'd like to put all this into context. And the context I'd like to put it into is a spiritual context. Let me do that just by telling you a couple of stories, okay? First story. First story comes from one of the priests of our diocese, uh, Father Paul de LaGarante. Father Paul de is the uh, uh, director of catechetics and sacred liturgy, and he's a really smart guy, all right? So, Father Paul was one time a seminarian, and uh, if you know anything about seminarians and churches and parishes, you know that there's these really well-meaning, pious little ladies who just go to everything. And can't get enough, All right. I mean, if you host any event, they show up, okay? God bless them, they're gonna be first in line for the kingdom of heaven. But sometimes it can be a little bit much, right? So one time this lady comes up to, 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 to Father Paul, seminary at the time, and he's wearing his Roman collar. Now, seminarians frequently, I uh, don't know what else to wear, so they wear Roman collar, but they're not priests. Seminarians are totally used to people walking up to them saying, Hey, Father. And they say, Hey, no, I'm, I'm not a priest, I'm not a priest, I'm just a seminarian. So this little old lady comes up to seminarian Paul de Lateronte, and she goes, Oh, Father, oh, Father, Father, give me a blessing, Father. And he goes, Well, now I'm. I can't give you a blessing. You have to wait until I'm ordained to preach to give you a blessing. She says, oh father, don't let that stop you, Father. Just give me a blessing. She goes, <laughs> so Well, okay, but it's gonna have to be in Latin. She goes, oh that's great, Father, that's great. So she kneels down and she says, Nemo quod non Which means one cannot give what one does not have. And she piously makes a sign to the cross and wants, Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much. That's my first story. (laughs) Here's my second story. Comes from the Gospel of St. Luke. Okay? As they continued their journey, they entered a village where a woman whose name was Martha welcomed them. She had a sister named Mary, who sat beside the Lord at his feet, listening to him speak. Martha, burdened with much serving, came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. The Lord said in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, before I say a word about healing past wounds, let me say this. Only one thing is necessary. God is the healer. But you can't give what you don't have. Everything I'm going to say is predicated on this one premise. The closer your relationship with Christ, the better you're able to heal your own wounds and to help others to do the same. Okay? Now, there's a number of subjects that I'm going to go over, and then I'm going to give you some help for healing wounds that are absolutely traumatic. Here's what I want to go over. I want to go over some tools to help you heal wounds. Tool one. Tool one. Gratitude. Tool number two. Recognizing blessings in disguise. Tool number three. Getting outside of yourself. Tool number four. Forgiveness. Tool number five. To be revealed later what to do when all else fails. Okay? Let's go through these one at a time. First thing I want to tell you about is uh, a tool for helping you to heal past wounds. And it sounds like old-fashioned advice, and it is, but you know it works. And it's count your blessings. I heard your mom say, count your blessings. Well, listen to mom. Let me tell you, there is a growing body of psychological evidence that proves grateful people are happy people. Okay, This comes from the New York Times. Adults who frequently say thank you have more energy, more optimism, more social connections, and more happiness than those who do not, according to studies conducted over the past decade. They're also less likely to be depressed, Envious, greedy, they earn more money, sleep more soundly, exercise more regularly, and have a greater resistance to viral infections. All because they say thank you. (laughs) Now why, honestly, now why is thank you so powerful? You ever heard it said, the truth will set me free? Yeah, I believe someone named Jesus once said that, okay? The reality of your human condition is one of absolute dependence. I don't care how powerful you think you are. Right? I always like to think God's got a, a, a every winter, God likes to throw a snowstorm at us to make us realize just how dependent we are on something as simple as the weather in this powerful metropolitan area thinks it's got the world by the end by the end of the tail. All oh, God to you is lower the temperature, and it comes to a grinding halt. Okay. Thank you. It's reality. Listen to this: the Journal of Psychology and Social, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology of the University of Miami conducted this study. 100 people in a 10-week study. They were divided into three groups. The first uh, group listed every single day for 10 weeks five things for which they were grateful in the past week. Second group, five things which annoyed them in the past week. Third group, just list five events in the past week. Okay? They were all selected for their similar physical and mental health. The first group, after 10 weeks, had better health, exercised more regularly, felt better about their lives than the other two groups. Everything else being equal, except that they wrote down every day something they were thankful for. Incredible. The exact same study were tested after September 11th and Hurricane Katrina, same results. OK. We've got something in us psychologists call the negativity bias. The negativity bias is an innate tendency to focus on problems, annoyances, and injustices. And I'm telling you, it's not the whole picture. You know what happens when people focus on uh, the problems and the annoyances and the injustices? They had the opposite effect. Everything else being equal. Psychologically, mentally, the same. All they did was focus on what went wrong. And their health was worse. They were sadder. I mean, all these negative things. It's all it's all, uh, it's all mental. Honestly, I had an experience I'm going to share with you. I almost was killed in a plane crash. Took off from Detroit Metro, bound for Washington, D.C., and there was an explosion in the cargo hold, and all the alarms went off, and all the radars and all the whole airport come to a screeching halt, and we were allowed to come back in to this crippled, crippled jet, and they all of in the crash position, and here I am, okay, all was well, they gave us sincere apologies and vouchers for future travel, right? <laughs> But for a few minutes there, I thought I was going to be in the evening news. Let me tell you, I was so thankful just to be alive. It's nothing like almost losing something to make you realize just how dependent you are on things. Um, If you want to know what to do to put this in practice, let me give you a couple of specific things. One, even if nobody ever does this, I'm going to say this. Keep a gratitude journal. Write down things that you're thankful for. And don't be general about it. My house. My dog. My job. No. Be specific. I mean, why do make a difference? I did this, and it works. Another little task you might want to try its called the George Bailey effect. You know, it's a wonderful life. I wish I was dead. I wish I'd never been born. Imagine one blessing in your life subtracted. Maybe you've got nice, peaceful neighbors. I have nice, peaceful neighbors. Just imagine, you know, if the bass player is spinal tap lived next door or something like that. I don't know. Some of you might like that for all I know. But... Imagine something subtracted from your life, and it'll change your attitude. Let me tell you. Gratitude heals hurts, right? And ingratitude. I I, I knew of a a girl, true story. Very, very wealthy teenage girl, a little princess, okay? And her parents, for her 18th birthday, bought her a convertible Cadillac. She came downstairs, walked out into the driveway, saw her convertible Cadillac, and guess what she did? She burst into tears. And she screamed, you've ruined my life. She wanted a BMW. Let me tell you, a little thing that makes a big difference, gratitude, all right? Here's another one. Recognizing that the bad things in life are blessings in disguise. Now, if you've got faith, you're able to see that. If you've got A little bit of faith. You're able to see that a little bit. But even if you've got no faith at all, you can recognize what Friedrich Nietzsche once famously said, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. Okay? No pain, no gain. But recognize it's true for big things as well. By the way, I hate that quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. Because what he failed to mention is that it almost kills you. Okay? There you are, almost dead. But here, here's a a true story. Now, this is from a priest I know who told me about a relative of his. And if any of you are St. Jude parishioners and heard this in a homily, pretend like you haven't heard it before. And if you hear it in a homily in the future, pretend like you've never heard it. Okay? Relative of his, um, uh, a young lady, marriageable age, lives in Ireland, about a hundred years ago. was be on her own, grow up, be out of the house, be on her own, you know. A friend of hers gives her a ticket to America. She couldn't afford a ticket to get to America. She comes home waving this ticket. Daddy, daddy, isn't it great? I'm going to America. Father says, let me see that ticket. Tears up the ticket, throws it in the fireplace. No daughter of mine is leaving this house before she's married. It was a ticket to the Titanic. No joke. Blessings in disguise, brothers and sisters. God has ways of working things out for your benefit. And the more faith he has, the more you're able to see that. Hurts, wounds, troubles, difficulties, annoyances. Who would you be without your sufferings? You'd be a spoiled brat, that's who you'd be. Your character, if nothing else. Those are blessings in disguise. And God knows what he's doing. Keep that in mind. Okay. Little lesson number three. Get out of yourself. Okay? The bigger the hurt, the harder it is to do, I admit. If somebody's got a hangnail, uh, you know, and they think the world's coming to an end, they got problems. The big problems, though, I uh, granted, it's hard to get out of yourself when you're when you've really got sincere. Hurts, but the bigger the hurt, the more essential it is to get outside of yourself. Okay. One of my favorite stories, though, uh, to help illustrate this, comes from Theodore Dostoevsky, the Brothers Karamazov. To get outside yourself, you've got to act and put virtues into practice. That's the message. If you want to get outside your own little world, you got to get out and help people. That, 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 that you've got to put into practice the things that you've heard. Save another person's soul, and it'll save your own. Anyway, Fyodor Dostoevsky tells a story to Brother's Karamazar. About this woman. Um, her name is Madame Holikov. And she goes to this guru priest, whose name is Father Zasima. And uh, she says to him, uh, you know, I uh, when I was a little girl, I had this beautiful faith. And it was so comforting, it was so beautiful. You know, and then I grew up and I went to college and they took my faith away from me. They told me science explains everything, that God doesn't exist, and when I reached the end of my life, there's going to be nothing left but flowers on a grave. Give me my faith back, Father. Prove it to you. The priest said, I can't prove it to you. He says, why can't you prove it to me? He it's too big to prove, I can't prove it to you. And Madam Holocaust says, well, then there's no hope. I'm never going to have my faith back. He goes, yes, there's hope. There's a way you can get your faith back. Practice Christian virtues. All those things that you've heard, all those things you know, act on them. And all of the rest will become clear. The more you help others, the more you put into practice all these things that you've been hearing since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, going to be healed. St. John of the Cross put it beautifully. Where you find no love in this world, put love in and you will draw love out. However, the opposite is the case. Stay wrapped up in yourself and you'll be so, so unhappy. I was looking through my uh, notes one day and I came across something I've used before. It's a It's called How to Be Perfectly Miserable, okay? In 11 easy steps. Here we go. (laughs) Number one, think about yourself. Number two, talk about yourself. Number three, use the word I as often as possible. Number four, mirror yourself continually in the opinion of others. Number five, listen greedily to what other people say about you. Number six, insist on consideration and respect. Number seven, demand agreement with your own views on everything. Number eight, sulk if people are not grateful. Number nine, never forget a service you've rendered. Number ten, expect to be appreciated. Number eleven, never forget criticism. How to be perfectly miserable? It's all keeping inside yourself, and getting outside is the beginning of healing. Okay. Forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a lovely idea. As long as somebody else has to do the forgiving, right? As soon as you have to do the forgiving, it's a hateful idea. You think that it's impossible. You usually pose some imaginary, uh, impossible scenario. You know, like the Jews forgiving the Nazis or something like that. Well, you know, when, I, when we um, study mathematics, we don't begin with calculus. And when we learn forgiveness, we don't begin with Jews forgiving Nazis, right? We start with small things. And there's tons of small things. You know, we have heard, don't sweat the small stuff. Oh, and by the way, it's all small stuff. <laughs> Practice forgiveness you'll find that it has an incredible healing effect. One thing, though, that I'd like you to keep in mind, though, is you practice forgiveness. This is just for your own pocket. File this way in the back of your mind. Many people are incapable of forgiving because they haven't forgiven themselves. I hear lots of confessions. People have no trouble believing God can forgive other people. But they have an unusually hard time believing that forgive them and it's because they haven't forgiven themselves. I was on a trip once with a tour in Europe. One of the people on the trip was a psychiatrist. We had a fascinating discussion as we were walking around one day in the city of Athens. He said there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who hate themselves and know it and those who hate themselves and don't know it. And the reason for this is because when we do things that we know are wrong, if we don't let them out and tell somebody, which, by the way, is a little shameless plug for confession. Plug. If we don't let them out and tell somebody, we beat ourselves up. The key to stopping beating yourself up is understanding the truth that God has forgiven you. Again, tied to prayer. Okay? Now, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, when all else fails, three things. Number one, talk it out. Don't keep it to yourself. If you've got a problem, you're having a bad day, you can't keep the tears from flowing, talk it out. Find somebody to talk to but don't keep it bottled up inside. makes a world of difference. Number two, work on something in which there's visible progress. I'm talking about a jigsaw puzzle. Okay? i uh, talking about knitting uh, or working on a song or something in which you can actually see progress. you know you feel better doing that? Seriously. No, none of these are deep solutions, but it works. And number three, find your favorite thing to eat and go eat it. <laughs> it works. It doesn't make you feel good for a long time, but you know, it's a little shot in the arm when you need it. Okay. Now, for deeper things. What I've come to realize uh, is that some hurts never heal. Ever. you are going to carry them to your grave. And no advice will ever change that. And no amount of prayer will ever change that. Some hurts are for life. But that doesn't mean you can't make them better. A couple of things to keep in mind. First thing to keep in mind. Human life is a rapidly passing experience. Looking around this room, seeing a lot of folks who, you know, they could be in their 20s, maybe early 30s. All I have to say is, don't blink, you're going to be in your 40s before you know it, right? Rapidly passing experience. Everything, even the precious things in life, things like families and relationships and... Friends, it's all passing. Pain is passing too. It's all flowing through the river of time into the great ocean of eternity. But it's not passing into nowhere. It's going somewhere. going two places it's going. It's going to an eternal paradise of heaven, or it's going to the eternal loss of hell. There's only two possibilities. Christ has given meaning to all suffering. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? Can't, Jesus never promised this world would be about suffering. Okay? He never promised this world would be about suffering. But the best is the purpose of this world is not comfort, or security, or even happiness. The purpose of this world is training. For something far better. I've heard it said this world makes a lousy home, but it makes a great gymnasium. This world is not all uh, rose gardens. In fact, when the King of Kings came into this world, he wore the thorns from this world's gardens as a crown. But if you can find meaning in suffering, you can handle anything. And if you can't find meaning in suffering, um, it's going to drive you mad. And the meaning is found par excellence in the cross of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you a little story about uh, An Auschwitz prisoner, um, Victor Frankl, he was a Viennese psychiatrist, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he observed people's behavior in Auschwitz and wrote it down. And what he discovered was that the people who survived the concentration camp, we were not necessarily the strongest people, or even the most mentally fit people, or the youngest people. Many of them died. The people who survived were the ones who knew how to make meaning out of their suffering. Now, some people did meaningful tasks in the concentration camps. They built fences, they dug foundations for buildings. Some people did meaningless tasks deliberately given to them by their captors, like lifting heavy objects from one end of the camp to the other, only to move it back the next day. Those people lost their sanity. Those who found meaning in their suffering survived. So let me try to help you to give a little bit of meaning to your suffering here, okay? A little bit of meaning from faith. A little bit of meaning from hope. A little bit of meaning from love. First, faith. This is quite a challenge, but, hey, if you pray, the challenge becomes easier. If you want to experience calm and purpose rather than dullness and frustration, the solution, if you can finagle it, is to say from your heart, the words that you say every time you say to our Father, Thy will be done and mean it. Let me tell you, I see a lot of people die as priests. Perfectly healthy people, you know them, you watch them go through an illness. People who have a terminal illness, I see something over and over again that's fascinating. I see them with heroic detachment and heroic faith. Something inside them, once they realize they're going to lose everything, okay? Once they realize, and I'm okay with that. They become inspirations to everyone who knows them. One thing I'm suggesting here is the sooner you're able to accomplish that same reality in your own daily life, the better you're going to be able to handle all of the sufferings that life has sent and will send. Say it and mean it. Hand it all over to God and trust. Okay. Number two, hope. Hope is faith directed towards the future. Let me give you a little thought experiment. Suppose this life is uh, like a womb. Suppose this life is not an end in itself, but a preparation for something else. Suppose this entire universe that we live in is actually a very small thing compared to all of reality. If you get inside the mind of an unborn child, you might think they might think to themselves the womb is all there is. It's the whole universe as far as they're concerned. With no sense that something bigger is waiting for them. But somewhat happens to us when we die? And the things that are happening to an unborn, like the growth of ears and eyes and bones and feet and hands, they haven't the slightest idea what any of that would ever be for. You need to sort of continue along with your mental thought experiment. They might think to themselves, well, "This womb is all there is, why do I have these arms sticking around the side of me? What are these bones growing in me for? They don't have the slightest idea what might be coming. And you know what? Neither do we. St. Paul said, eyes not heard, eyes not seen, ears not heard. It's not dawned on your mind. God is prepared for those who love. Him. But if we think of this world as preparatory, we can deal with pain, and that's very, very important. Last one is love. You know, if you love somebody, gotta ask yourself, what's the aim of love? What does love want? What does love really want? Love wants unity. That's what love wants. Love wants intimacy, closeness. If you're a philanthropist, you just want to help other people in their hardships. But if you love them, you want to be with them in their hardships. We don't just want to take their pain away. If someone's suffering, you want to be with them in that suffering. Somebody might have been around here long. enough to remember Redskins quarterback Mark Ribbon way back in the day when the Redskins actually won games. And his child uh, was dying of cancer and was gone through chemotherapy, lost all his hair. This big, gutsy quarterback shaved all his hair off so that he could have the same suffering as his, as his son. That's what love wants to do. And what do we believe about the founder of our faith? What did he come to do? come to wipe all of our problems away? Make them all vanish with a wave of a magical wand. No, he took them on to himself. He entered into the sufferings of us. And we recognize that the deeper we enter into him, the deeper we're able to enter into the sufferings of others, and the more sense we're able to make out of all this. You know, the, 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 the solution to the problem of evil is found on the cross. I had a student once in high school. He was a black belt in judo. He got an A, okay? (laughs) But he told me about judo. And he said that judo is a martial art in which you use the strength of your aggressor as a weapon against him. Someone comes rushing at you and attacks you. You use their own velocity to flip them on their back. That's judo. The cross is God's... Judo. Satan had his whole plan carefully crafted. Judas, Pilate, Caiaphas, Herod, all culminated in Calvary. And then, at the very moment that it looked like evil was going to triumph, evil was defeated. A little lamb took on the terrible beast for the heavyweight championships of the universe and won. There's a companionship in suffering, but through the cross there's a victory over it. God makes it a means to good. Now the deeper you have prayer life, the better that you're able to do that. The better you're able to understand that. It gets you outside of yourself. I was on a trip once. Um, It's a closed bus for several hours. We were all on each other's nerves. Okay. And they finally stopped by the side of the sea. And all these people that were griping and you know, complaining and picking on one another. They rolled up their pant legs, they waited out and would see, and you know they were all happy? It's like the whole busload of people, and all the problems disappeared. Why? Because they got inside of themselves, that's why. Prayer helps you do that. You know what the the, um, the, the Greek word for getting outside of yourself is? Two Greek words. Ecstasis. Ecstasy. Getting outside of yourself. This is something that prayer ultimately leads us to do, to focus on God and others, and almost self-forgetfulness. Up on uh, 168th Street and Broadway in New York City, there's a hospital. He's walking along there, he And high up above the doorway, there's an inscription carved above the door. And all these people are stumbling by, weighed down by the problems of life. Nobody looked up. Nobody read the inscription, but there it was carved in stone. If only they'd look up to see. There on the hospital it said, Behold, the Most High comes healing. Behold, the Most High comes healing. And we will not know how to find peace until we take that very, very seriously. Let me end with a little prayer that I love. It's a prayer to Mary, and I think it encapsulates everything I've been trying to say. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Holy Mary, Mother of God, preserve in me the heart of the child, pure and clean like spring water. A simple heart that does not remain absorbed in its own sadness. A loving heart that freely gives with compassion. A faithful and generous heart that neither forgets any good nor feels bitterness for any evil. Give me a humble heart that loves without asking to be loved in return. Happy to lose itself in the heart of others sacrificing itself in front of your divine Son. A great and unconquerable heart which no ingratitude can close and no indifference can tire. A heart tormented by the glory of Christ, pierced by his love with a wound that will not heal until heaven. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.